3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resistance of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, Wednesday breakfast listeners. Good morning. Good morning. How are we all? Very good, thank you. How are you guys? I've been good. Um, just final week of the semester and then I'm done. So yeah, that's just what I've been very busy about, if just dealing with uni. Very yeah. nice. How very about you? How's your week? Uh, so yeah, very uh, busy. Um, cricket season just going through the motions now, so the weekend was full of cricket and cold weather, and um, I- I'm kind of glad that it's slowly warming up, Claudia, slowly warming up. Help those muscles, Pat. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> I, I didn't realise until I woke up on Monday morning how sore I was. As listeners will know, uh, it's not fun trying to run around and chase a red ball for a hundred odd overs across both days. Not fun. <laughs> well, it's nice uh, to hear that the young people get sore bodies as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Listeners, listeners will be like, "Yay, a young person got sore this time." Whoop de doo. But um, anyway, we've got a very good show today, uh, Claudia. You've got a very interesting interview coming up very soon. Yes. It- Ten past eight, we'll be speaking with Professor Lynette Russell from Monash University's Indigenous Studies Centre. And after a week's silence uh, following the referendum, uh, Lynette's going to be talking to us about some of her reflections, but also about the role of history and history education um, in Australia. Yeah, sounds very interesting. I'll be speaking to uh, Tony Clarkson. I spoke to him earlier. He's from the uh, Victoria Responsible Gambling Foundation. We're going to be discussing all things gambling and the impacts it has on young people. And Grace, you got some uh, a ripper of an interview as well. Yeah, so I'll be speaking to Associate Professor Mark Rickinson, who is a project director of Q Project. And we're just going to be talking about bridging the gap between teaching practices and using research evidence. So looking at how Q Project focuses on guiding teachers in universities uh, to better use research evidence when it comes to teaching. Cool, very interesting. So a big show coming up, but Claudia, headlines, what's going on in the news? Before the headlines, Pat, we've got our final interview. Rounding up the show at 10 past oh, yes. 8. <laughs> very important. We've got an art segment, which uh, I think is long overdue. And we have David Prakash, who is a street dancer and community youth worker, joining us to talk about a major dance event that's taking place this weekend at Footscray Community Arts. Now on to headlines. 
And uh, to start off, The Age has reported that Hawthorne will be facing a huge uh, settlement over the uh, Clarkson and Chris Fagan racism report that was reported 12 months ago. Uh, in the in the article, it says Hawthorne are facing a significant financial settlement with four-time Premiership coach Alistair Clarkson, while his former football boss Chris Fagan also wanted public apologies from the club over the impact of the cultural safety review on their professional and private lives. Uh, in the article, the AFL is winding up its investigation of the Hawks' handling of the review, also known as the Baramara Report, into grievances of First Nation players and their families at the club between 2008 and 2016. As you would know, the um, the two people. It was also reported uh, in the ABC twelve months ago that first First Nations players, three First Nations players, were impacted by the behaviour of Alistair Clarkson and Chris Fagan. Those allegations are still ongoing. And uh, Grace, any more? Headlines? Yeah, so the former commando Heston Russell has been awarded more than $400 in damage after suing the ABC for defamation. Russell sued the ABC and two investigative journalists in the federal court over stories with allegations about the death of a prisoner in Afghanistan back in 2012. In 2021, which was the year ABC published the stories, included claims from an ex-US Marine who was nicknamed Josh who alleged that the prisoner was executed because there wasn't a room on a helicopter, but he was actually not an eyewitness. Russell, who was the former commander of the November platoon, publicly refuted the claims following initial reporting in 2020. The journalist Mark Willisey believed that the publication was in the public interest. However, the judge rejected it and that the belief was not reasonable in the circumstances. ABC's managing director, David Anderson, says the judgment was considered. However, he will not apologise to Russell. And the pro-Palestine Green Left Socialist Alliance has called out the ABC and other media outlets for failing to hold Israel to account in reports of the Israel-Hamas conflict. The alliance has criticised Western media outlets for backing Israel and focusing disproportionate attention on Hamas's role in the conflict. The alliance said Hamas should not be let off the hook for war crimes, but Israeli assertions about Hamas savagery must be closely scrutinised as dehumanising dehumanizing language can be used to justify acts of ethnic cleansing by the Zionists. It reports claims by an Israeli woman who survived the October 7th event that killings only began after Israel arrived on the scene and that Hamas had acted humanely before this. And that's all your headlines. We're going to go to a track now. It's going to be Paul Kelly from St Kilda King's Cross. against the glass and watch the white lines rushing past and all around me felt like all inside me and my body left me and my soul went running have you ever seen king's cross when the rain is falling soft i came in on the evening bus from Oxford Street I cut across And if the rain don't fall too hard Everything shines just like a postcard Everything goes on 
just the same Fair weather friends are the hungriest friends I keep my mouth well shut I cross the open hands Where the palm trees have it high I give you all of Sydney Harbour All that land and all that water For that one sweet promenade I give you all of Sydney Harbour All that land and all that water For that one sweet promenade Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty, by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, 
regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's North? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to October is History Month and in the aftermath of the referendum on a voice to Parliament, thinking about Australia's history and its future is as important as ever. Our next guest is Lynette Russell, someone who actively promotes the value of history every day. Professor Russell is a Sir John Monash Distinguished Professor and Australian Research Council Laureate Professor working at Monash University's Indigenous Studies Centre. Her illustrious career spans three decades, covering the 16th to 20th centuries in Australian history. She was an active promoter of The Voice to Parliament and co-authored a book with Melissa Caston called Time to Listen, an Indigenous Voice to Parliament, published last month. Professor Russell's Aboriginal ancestors were born on the lands of the Wachabolic people in Western Victoria, and her British descendants were transported to Australia as convicts. She joins us now following a week's silence to talk about the referendum and the future of history and history education in Australia. Welcome, Professor Russell. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. First, I'd like to thank you for making time to speak to our listeners today. There's just been a week's silence to allow First Nations people time to take stock of the referendum result. How was this time for you? It's definitely a time of deep reflection. I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't want to be speaking to media or out publicly. And obviously, my inaugural lecture had already been um, scheduled some months ago, so I still gave the lecture but requested that nobody put it on social media until the end of the week of silence and certainly no one was to... It's been recorded but it wasn't to be played until the week of silence. But it's also a kind of optimism. I know that uh, sounds a little glass half full, but I feel that nearly 7 million Australians voted yes and I think that's 
7 million allies that we really can start to work with and rely on and make some changes. Can you tell us what about the referendum, whether it be the campaign, the result, has impacted you the most? Um, Well, definitely the result. It was the rapidity with which we knew the result. I, I, you know, it was just about 84 minutes or something. Um, and, mm. and Anthony Green announced that it could not win. Um, mm. I think it's also conceiving of it in, in terms such as a win or a loss. Um, I feel like just the whole kind of language around the, the process is really problematic. Um, and I don't think the no, I mean, some no campaigners, no doubt, will feel that they won. But by no means did every single person who vote no um, reject Aboriginal mm. people or an Aboriginal voice. So I think there's room there for us to, to think about this deeply and move forward. Thank you. There has been a lot of talk about the need for truth-telling in relation to Australia's history. I'd like to hear your view on the best place or vehicle for this truth-telling. Is it through truth-telling commissions like Victoria's Uruk Justice Commission, through our museums and arts, the collection of oral histories, or is it via better education in schools and universities? I guess it's all of the above, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think there is an absolutely a role for the Truth Commission, such as what we have here in Melbourne and I'm in Victoria. And I'm so pleased to live in a state that is addressing the question of truth. I'm also very conscious that there is a role to play for museums uh, and indeed for that, frankly, um, for galleries, for various institutions, libraries even. But the crucial, the most important thing has to be in our education. We have to teach students at every level the true history of Australia and that's, I'm not talking about a black armband view I think many wonderful things happened in our history but I think we do also need to deal with the fact that we are on unceded land and there was violence associated with the quote unquote colonisation or settlement of Australia and maybe that's something we could attempt could deal with in the education system. So let's um, talk a little bit more in detail about the education system. Starting with schools in the sort of secondary level, is the curriculum adequately conveying the breadth and depths of First Nations history uh, or is it still leaving things out or minimising events such as the frontier wars? touching on it. A lot of it is also depending on the, the degree of motivation of individual teachers and we, we, we are aware of that. I think it's really important to understand that, that teaching history, um, particularly at high school, it's often not the specialist subject of the individual teacher. They can mm. be trained in something else and they're teaching history as their second or third subject that they, they teach. Um, I keep a really close eye on what's happening in terms of the newsletters and the you know the publications that high school teachers uh, have access to, and I'm I am surprised that sometimes the standard is is still pretty poor. Um, I'm very conscious of the fact that textbooks still give maybe one or two quick chapters 
to the pre-European history and then quickly escalated off to the Rum Rebellion and First Fleet and the you know the next the rest of the book is literally dedicated to to European history and not Indigenous histories. Um, I think there's I mean we've got a we've got a history in this country that goes back sixty five thousand years. I think it deserves more than a couple of quick chapters or lessons. Particularly when subjects like ancient China are being uh, shared with our young learners and we're not giving that context in our own country. Absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things that you do see, and you see this around the world, often, um, often you will use the history of another place to, in a sense, explore... Um, key themes that are actually relevant in your own history, but for whatever reason aren't being acknowledged. Can you give an example? I've always found it really interesting, for example, that um, in Austria, um, there's a huge amount of people studying Australian history, and yet Austrian history was much less popular, which I find quite peculiar. So mm. I, I feel that it's, um, it's, it's a, they're using our history as a lens through which they might explore some of the themes that perhaps are relevant to their own history. And I think it happens here in Australia too. Um, we've got, you know, people are still studying, you know, Russian history. And it's all very good. I'm very, I'm very much in favour of people studying all sorts of history. I just don't want it to be at the expense of Australian history because it's pretty important. And in the talk you gave uh, last week, you spoke about the problem of enrolment numbers in history subjects. Is yeah. that an observation across the board of history subjects, or is it particularly in relation to Australian history? And is the trend present at both VCE and university levels? It certainly is, and it's across all history. Um, the drop in numbers of students enrolling in history units at university continues to drop. And I think that by studying history, it teaches you an enormous number of skills, but it also gives you significant background. And we get, you know, we get a lot of students studying Indigenous histories, but by no means um, most. And those that do study it often take it further. And we've got a lot of former students of ours who are working in, in the public service, in government policy areas, and many of them working in museums and art galleries, libraries. It actually gives you a whole set of skills that you can can take into the workplace. I don't think that's when it's not selling it very well. So what changes would you like to see in the way history is taught or promoted to encourage well, more people to take this on? Sure. I think um, there's, there's a lot we can do in the digital space. Um, you know, the students who are coming to university and students in high schools these days are absolutely digital natives and they're very, very literate in that space. And I think there's a lot we could be doing, interactive gaming, you know, there's a whole lot of things we can do with with the history um, and make it really interesting and engaging and, you know, I mean, I don't want to say fun because obviously some of it's dark and some of it's pretty bleak, but I think there's ways in which we could teach it that would be perhaps a little bit more than chalk and talk, which mm. is essentially what, our, what we still do, even though we call them PowerPoints and they're electronic, I mean... And it's, um, yeah, it really um, does make a difference. I studied uh, Japanese language across a number of decades, I suppose you could say, because I studied it as a 
secondary and university student when I did my first degree, but then I went back to Monash five years ago and did some more more studies there. And the the change in the way the material was presented and the the very contemporary space that they were bringing um, the material to the students, I was just blown over. I mean the. The, the use of things like, you know, YouTube and gaming and all of those interactive uh, mechanisms were built into the PowerPoints, they were built into the class activities, into the um, activities we did outside the classroom and it, it was actually fun and yeah. Uh, yeah. I was really amazed and impressed at the, the way it was being taught and, you know, and the, the, the numbers of students were probably reflected in that, huge numbers of students taking yeah. the, the subject. I think the other thing about doing that is some of my younger colleagues are really good at that. Uh, we should be really celebrating their teaching um, and, and not seeing it you know, as, as somehow just just a, an added extra. I mean, let's listen to the way they deliver these really exciting and interesting um, subjects I think that's a great example for Japanese. Yeah, and I'm just also remembering years ago I did a talk at my child's primary school. Um, I think it was a group of year five students and I was thinking about ways I could engage them in, in uh, it was about Japan and Japanese history, but one of the things I did was get a YouTube clip of a, a dramatisation of a very significant historical fight between two rival warlord groups and... I was amazed the kids were glued to it and the questions, their hands were shooting up and and I'd been so focused on trying to get the tech side of it done that I hadn't really focused on the actual substance of it. They were asking me all these questions. But, yeah, it was really uh, interesting and I think you've really got to reach your audience these days. Yeah, absolutely. So coming back to um, Australian history, you also mentioned that you'd like to see an intervention in the debate about history and national identity. I wanted to find out what you meant by that. Sure. I think Australia's um, obsession with its national identity and its focus on the British um, continues even to today. Um, we still have this kind of idea that everything everything begins and ends with Britain, really. It's, you know, 1770, Cook. You know, quote-unquote discovery is still taught as a discovery, is exploration of the east coast of Australia. And I think given, you know, 60% of Australians have at least one parent born overseas, we're, we're deeply multicultural. But the conservative side of politics in particular keeps pushing this really kind of monocultural view, which is very, I think, literate up to our history. But I think that an intervention... To really start to think about history in Australia, beginning 65,000 years ago, and start to really think about all the changes that took place during that time, and then just take it up to, to the present. Um, but you can, there's so much more we could be saying, and so much more we could be teaching our students and enthusing them. Because I mean, I'm passionate about this stuff, it's so exciting to me, and I find it we're just starting to get some crackles on the line. 
Are you able just to bring your voice a bit closer to your device? Thank you. Yes, certainly. Well, I hope that there's some engagement at this, almost the structural level of how history is being taught in the curriculum. And we would love to talk to you again about any changes or developments in that space. No worries. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Pleasure. Thank you, Claudia. And that was Sir John Monash, Distinguished Professor and Australian Research Council Laureate Professor Lynette Russell from Monash University's Indigenous Studies Centre, sharing her reflections on the voice to Parliament, referendum and the future of history in Australian education. And for those interested, um, Lynette Russell actually has a prize in her name for First Peoples History in Schools and that prize will be presented tonight at the History Council of Victoria annual lecture event. So if you're interested in hearing about what is going on in schools and how young people are engaging with our First Peoples, you can um, hop on online for that at 5.30. I'll put the booking link in our show notes and there'll also be a public lecture as part of the History Council's annual lecture program. And we will now go to a little short break. After that, we will come back and be hearing to Tony Clarkson, a principal clinical advisor for the Victorian Responsible Gambling. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's north? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to you are on 3CR 855 AM on your dial. You're listening with Patrick Morrow, Grace Tran and Claudia Craig for Wednesday Breakfast. Now, I spoke to Tony Clarkson earlier, a Principal Clinical Advisor to to Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation. We discussed the impacts of gambling on young people and what the foundation is doing to stop gambling. As we know, it is coming close to the races and those who are going to put a bet on, please gamble responsibly. I am now joined on the line with Tony Clarkson, a Principal Advisor from the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation. Tony, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. That's okay, Tony. Uh, so, Tony, um, the uh, Guardian Australian released an re- article regarding uh, gambling and the impacts it has on the youth currently. Uh, to start, why are we seeing children as young as 10 uh, betting on sporting events? Well, I mean, obviously it's, it's not legal for under-18s to gamble, um, but we, we still know through research that a, a large number of young people have, have gambled at some point in their lives. Mm. Um, we don't know. Um, we don't know more details because it's illegal. Uh, but we do know that, that gambling on esports, for example, or gaming, gambling uh, that's sort of advertised through various forms of media like social media, um, is is quite often like social casino games, another uh, thing that young people might 
uh, have available to them. Uh, so we know that um, we know that it's happening. Um, it's just difficult to sort of quantify because technically it's not legal because you have to be over eighteen to gamble. Yeah, of course, of course, Tony. What do you, what do you make of that whole esports realm? Like, it's it's very difficult to regulate. I'm I'm guessing. Yeah, it's really difficult to regulate, and it's really popular, uh, obviously, because um, a lot of young people are, are seeing uh, influencers and and folk like sort of uh, who you know have maybe a big presence on YouTube or um, a lot of followers on on various other platforms. Seeing people like that um, maybe um, promoting esports, um, or they're seeing basically a lot of uh, a lot of money being won on esports, and it's connected to games that they might be used to. So, you know, massive sort of multiplayer online games, for example, that they might be used to, and so that it, it's, it sort of looks like an attractive option to them. Um, and yeah, like you say, it's really difficult to regulate because it's a it's a relatively new phenomenon. Yeah, what's the um, Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation doing in that space? Are you guys looking to hopefully um, discuss with the government in in the future about how can you regulate? What's the policies being put forward? Yeah, well, look, we're, we're focused more on on what we can do for um, people that are impacted by gambling, and um, so more on um, you know the impact on on individuals, families, communities, and so we run a number of different programs. Um, for example, a program that's a, a schools education program called Be Ahead of the Game. And it sort of looks at um, educating sort of literacy, numeracy, various other sort of aspects of the school curriculum um, on gambling, and so um, provides sort of uh, the risks for gambling um, available to sort of years ten to twelve. Um, and there's a BCE, BCE vocational major in there. We're also doing we do quite a lot of uh, sort of prevention work, sort of community-based prevention, um, mm. and run a love the game sports clubs program. So basically, about four hundred and fifty clubs across Victoria, community-based clubs, right up to sort of elite clubs, are signed up to this sort of love the game charter. Um, and a lot of it's really about sort of educating people in community about the potential risks associated with gambling. Yeah, definitely. Why do you think we see so many young people involved in gambling now? And what do you think are the causes of it? Yeah, look, like I was saying earlier, I think it's a lot of it's about um, exposure. Um, so the more exposure there is to, the more people are exposed to gambling, the more um, the more attractive it might seem. Um, so, I mean, even just in Victoria, there's about 980 ads a day. Um, and that's free-to-air ads, so we've no idea how many additional ads people are seeing. So mm. when people are exposed to, to that sort of, some people sort of call it kind of saturation level of advertising, then um, then they're more likely maybe to think that it's, that it's an attractive way to make money. Also, um, you know, this is the first sort of generation of young people that have grown up with, with that level of, of advertising. Um, and so, you know, we, we know that, that young people might be a bit more susceptible to persuasion. Um, and also the way the gambling sort of depicted in the ads, it's always depicted very positively. You know, it's never really depicted as something that carries a risk associated with it. It's, it's always, um, people are always having a good time and, <laughs> and they're, always, <laughs> yeah. uh, they're always with friends. And, you know, it looks like a sort of uh, pleasurable activity, which, you know, of course it can be for, for lots of people. But, but I think it's important that people know that there are, there are risks associated. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I think I get sick of seeing the uh, Neds ad regularly uh, in the news and also seeing sports, but when I'm trying to watch the football or the cricket or the soccer, it's actually quite frustrating, in all honesty, Tony, from a pure sporting uh, fan. And, uh, and I think I think there's sometimes where I do question, why would anyone put money on an AFL game or a cricket match and then you work out how much money is involved uh, in it? It's quite alarming and quite scary. And uh, for a young person, especially to see, you know, the the only to show the positive side of gambling uh, in those ads doesn't really reflect on the the whole um, overall sphere of things. No, exactly, and I think 
one of the things that we've been trying to combat in recent years has been the increasing normalisation of, of gambling within sports. So, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, uh, people and young people in particular wouldn't think um, that there was a, a sort of a direct connection between gambling and sports. But now it's sort of interlinked and it's sort of just seen as part of, of sport when, of course, it isn't. Sports been going on for thousands of years, and people haven't gambled on sports. Uh, but increasingly, it's becoming more and more connected. And I think a large part of our role is to try and um, make people aware of that, uh, and try and get people to sort of get back to just enjoying sport for sport, as opposed to thinking, "Well, I have to have a punt on it as well." Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in all honesty, Tony, in my in my humble opinion, uh, as a, span, a fan of sport, I think the only time where I think it kind of makes sense to put a bet on is Melbourne Cup weekend, and and that's that's where I think that's where. There's a bit more luck to it uh, in that space, but when it comes to AFL or cricket or soccer or basketball, well, uh, we are seeing now increasingly they're betting on not just the game itself; they're betting on that prediction of okay, will he shoot the three or will he take the wicket or will he bowl a no ball? Um, and that's where it digs into the dark world of match fixing, which you've seen uh, rear its head a few times uh, in in especially not in Australia, not really in Australia, but mostly in 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 countries such as uh, India and Pakistan and also England as well. So uh, it's a it's a it's a real murky world, and we don't want to see that at a local sporting event space. And I've heard rumours no. I've heard rumours in that space as well, Tony, that uh, there has been some betting taking place uh, regarding the NPL uh, Victoria and also uh, NBL one basketball. So uh, it's not good yeah. to see in that in that terms as well. No, not at all. And, and obviously, we want we want people to be able to enjoy sports without sort of worrying about about the sort of gambling component of it. And the things that you touched on, um, people gambling on on those kind of things, um, are similar to kind of novelty bet gambling, which is becoming increasingly popular, where people are betting on things like uh, the outcome of reality TV shows. And, and that's you've got no control whatsoever over the outcome of that, um, and you've got no control whatsoever over whether or not someone takes a corner in a soccer match or. You know, someone makes a tackle, or um, you know, whatever. It's it, it, there's no skill involved, but the, a lot of the uh, advertising, I think, will have you believe that you can, in some way, <laughs> magically control it. Which, yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah. that's where I think the persuasion element comes in, and we need to help people to sort of critically think about gambling. Yeah, what should be done in terms of the sporting codes in trying to limit gambling at those events? It's something that I've had discussions with friends. Uh, also, my co-presenters on why is there so much gambling in an AFL event? Surely they'd be able to minimise it so that the young people don't see it. It's like, what could be done? I know how much money's involved in terms of the sponsorship deals with the AFL, for example. But what, like in in that space, where could they go right? We've got to find a moral a moral bound in that space. Mm. I mean, look, but I, I can't I can't sort of um, I can't answer for the AFL, but I know, like you say, there's a you know there are huge sums of money involved and. Not even just um, sporting codes in Australia, but overseas as well. Mm. Um, you know, there's a massive amount of money involved in sponsorship, um, and there's a massive amount of money involved in coverage. So, you know, sponsoring um, TV coverage, um, and that goes across a number of different codes. So, I suppose it's about um, it's about income and reliance, and about how much those codes uh, rely on that income through our, our program that we run, the Love the Game program. A lot of it um, is trying to educate. Uh, and provide information for community clubs, like I said, right up to elite level clubs about um, divesting from from gambling uh, sponsorship, um, and so trying to get them to understand that maybe there are other ways that they can they can generate income, um, other ways separate from maybe having a pokies machine at their um, at their club uh, or taking direct money from uh, gambling advertisers. Um, so that program really sort of is trying to sort 
steer people away from that and, and think a bit more about, well, you know, what kind of message might this send or um, do I need to listen to my constituents in terms of the people that are members of my sporting club and people like families who go along? Do I need to listen to them more because the sentiments that they are uh, describing are that they are kind of like you, a bit fed up with the sort of saturation level of advertising and, and want something to be done. Yeah, definitely, definitely. In terms of what parents and guardians can do, do you think they they should be more aware of what their children are doing online? And uh, I know you're not, uh, I know you're not a computer expert here, Tony. But do you think there could be a better, better way of trying to make sure that they are aware of what's going on as well? Yeah, definitely. Look, I mean, I've got two teenage boys, and you know, they they play online on games, um, and they're also you know like footy fans and basketball fans and. Um, I think really the main message for parents, and this is one of the messages that we would promote through our school's education programme and, and also through our Gambles Helps of um, counselling and support across the state for, for parents and families, is really to trying to have the conversation as much as possible. So trying to have um, uh, an open and transparent conversation with uh, teenagers and young people about gambling um, and just making them aware you know, that there, there are risks associated um, and just making them aware of all the sort of facts um, and trying to get them to think a bit more critically about it and think a bit more, um, you know, that, that, that think about those risks and think about the outcomes and think about what other things they could be doing with their money that might be a bit more constructive or that they make it more, more fun out of. Yeah, definitely, and there's a lot more better things to do with your money. In all honesty, Tony, even even from my point of view, in terms of uh, knowing that one one there's uh, better things to do with it, especially I highly recommend maybe uh, putting it putting it on uh, uh, not on a horse or a, or an AFL team, maybe put it on so buy a jersey or uh, buy a hot dog at the at the ground would be a better better option. <laughs> Yeah, and look, we're, we're not we're not anti gambling. We're not saying don't gamble. We're just saying look, just be aware of the risks. Be aware that there are risks associated, and be aware that you know people can end up in a situation where they've they've spent a huge amount of money and they don't get it back, um, and there are harms associated with that as well. Yeah, definitely. Just to finish off, Tony, before I let you go, where can you see the future of this of this issue, and where could um and where, and where could we see it in terms of um the minimisation of gambling in sport? Well, look, I'd, I'd love to see, um, I'd love to see a really robust discussion between um, various sporting codes and and governments and regulators about um, the level of advertising. I think, like you touched on, and like I hear a lot from from friends and, and other people, um, I think the community sentiment is generally moving towards a position of we're kind of a bit fed up with this. We want something to be done about it, and so I, I'd really love. Uh, I'd love that to sort of, I'd love it to return to a point where people go along to um, a, a sporting match and just, you know, their, their primary thought is about the game itself. Um, and, and sadly, where we are at the minute is a lot of people that I know and I still work as a counsellor and some of the people that come into gambling counselling with me, you know, they might be sat at the MCG uh, on a Saturday night when there's a game on and they're on their phone um, on a, um, a gambling app, <laughs> gambling on it, you know, and yeah. um, just I'd love to see it, uh, you know, get back to a point where, where people actually just primarily enjoy the game and, and um, you know, have a punt if you want, but don't let it sort of take over your life. Yeah, definitely, Tony. Well said, and uh, thanks very much for jumping on uh, Wednesday Breakfast. No worries. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. And that was Tony Clarkson there, a Principal Clinical Advisor for the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation. If any of this has uh, alarmed you in any way, you can call 
the Gamblers Anonymous helpline on 0396966108 or visit their website gaaustralia.org.au. You can also contact Lifeline on 131114. And if you want to hear about more about this issue, you can on our 3CR show, Living Free, which is on Thursday from 1pm to 2pm as they talk on substance misuse, alcoholism and other addictions and information on support groups is given as well in the show. Well, now we're going to go to another song, Cannot Buy My Soul by Archie Roach. For 200 years we've been beaten down Too long on the dark my dignity I'm losing here Mentally I'm on There's a system here that nails us And we're left out in the cold Oh, they took our life and lived their friends But they could not buy our soul Joe Hill died, Jacob Vara Ford I'm a wily down dead If a person speaks out critically here They could get loaded down with lead How long can the majority wait For their story to unfold Oh, they took their life and liberty friends But they could not buy their soul Well, the clever man spoke precisely Humanity said was done The greed for greed could not proceed If our struggles to be won For humanity is more important here Than a constant quest for gold Ah, you may take life and liberty, friends But you cannot buy our soul donkey up through that gate and he could see quite clearly he was gonna meet his fate and the powers would be could see that he could not be born or so but they took his life and lived their friends but they could not buy his soul yeah they took his life and lived their friends but they not by his soul When I was new to Melbourne I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. 
I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and that was Cannot Buy My Soul by Archie Roach. So now I'm going to be speaking with Associate Professor Mark Rickinson who is the Project Director of Monash University's The Q Project about bridging the gap between teaching practices and research. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Greg. Good, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Good. So nice to have you join us this early morning. So, Mark, can we first get you? Oh, sorry about that. Yep. So, Mark, can we first get you to just give a bit of explain about what the Q project is? Yeah, absolutely. So, the Monash is a five-year partnership between Monash University and the Paul Ramsey Foundation, Um, and our aim has been to understand and improve the use of research in Australian schools. So, as you know, Grace, mm-hmm. teachers and leaders in schools are faced with all sorts of challenges. We saw that, you know, really very clearly during the, uh, the pandemic, but it's, you know, even outside of extreme events like that, uh, the demands on, on teachers and leaders and, and on students are always changing. And so research is one resource that teachers and leaders can use to improve their practice and meet the needs of students in more creative ways. And so the Monash Q project was about really trying to work out how can we help leaders and teachers to use research well to improve practice. In the past, there's been a lot of work done around the quality of evidence, but far less around the quality of its use. So we were really focused on what does it mean to use research well to improve teaching practice and leadership practice in schools? And how can that be supported um, in schools and across schools? Mm, I see. And be- and also for Q Project, the focus is really basically on teachers in Monash universities, uh, in, Monash, in, in universities uh, as opposed to pre-service teachers, right? Yeah, that's right. Our focus, we've been working with schools, uh, you know, across four states. and leaders around how can 
how can they be supported to use research better to improve practice? Mm. And because your aim is to basically bridge the gap between teaching practices and research evidence, so why do you think it's so important to yeah. do that? One of the principals in one of the schools we work with has a lovely way of summing this up, and and it said, "Research matters. Research matters because kids matter." And really, what he's getting at there is is this idea that educators. You know, the, need, the needs of students are always changing. Um, and we saw that particularly in the pandemic, but at other times. And, um, and so research can be one resource that teachers and leaders can use to meet the needs of students. So let's say a school is wanting to improve the way it does assessment. Uh, so one of the schools we work with is trying to move from the, from the idea of giving grades towards um, supporting growth. So from grades to growth. And research can be helpful in thinking about how can you develop assessment practices in your school that help to support learning in a different way. Um, and so connecting research and practice is important because um, the, the challenges that schools face are always changing and research can be a resource for that. Um, connecting research and practice is also important for educators, we hear a lot about the challenges and the stress that leaders are under. And using research can be part of feeling like a professional, mm. feeling more confident, more assured in, in your work. And so it is important for meeting the needs of students, but it's also important for bolstering the confidence and professionalism and esteem of our teachers and school leaders. And I think a third reason, Grace, I'd say that connecting research and practice is important is that, you know, we have a public investment in research. Yep. You know, there's plenty of research done in universities and it's no good unless it gets used, you know. And in order for it to be used, we have to really understand, well, what does it mean to use research well in, in practice, you know, within classrooms, within schools, and how can we best support that? Um, and so there's also something about most of that research um, in, in, by implementing it in practice. Mm, I see. And how are the teachers guided with using research evidence for teaching practices? Is there an example of a guidance tool for that? Yeah, sure. Well, no, that's a great question. I mean, the Q Project has developed a framework, basically... Um, before we started this work in 2019, there was no um, tool or guide or framework where a teacher or a school leader could say, well, how well are you using research and how could I do it better? There were lots of guides and frameworks around what does good quality research look like, but, but hardly anything around what does good quality use look like. So we've developed a framework, the Quality Use of Research Evidence Framework, which the components or, you know, just kind of makes clear what's involved in using research well. And at the heart of it is this idea that thoughtful engagement, research doesn't tell you what to, in, in specific terms. Research is a resource to think with and come up with ideas. So you need that engagement. And also you need the uh, research to be appropriate for your So if you're in a regional, um, rural, you know, a regional or a rural school, 
the kind of research you need and the way in which you might apply a research practice will be quite different, possibly from a metropolitan high school, let's say. So it's important that we think about both the thoughtfulness and the appropriateness um, of the research. And so we've developed this framework um, which leaders uh, and teachers can use to think about, well, where am I in terms of um, using research within my practice? How can I get better? Um, and we developed also a self-assessment tool where teachers can respond um, you know, to a number of and then they get a readout that will kind of like a profile um, that says, here are your areas of strength, here are some areas that you could improve in, and then we've developed professional learning resources and other supports that can help teachers and leaders to, to start to work on particular areas for development. So we're trying to put um, both, I guess it's about trying to say, what is, it, what, is, what is it, where are we, and how can we get better? We're trying to provide resources that, that, that kind of help teachers and leaders to respond to all of those questions. Mm, I see. And so the Q Project has also worked with multiple universities alongside Monash University to deliver this guidance. And, and also at the same time, a lot of universities are based in regional, regional areas. So is there any mm. difference with guiding teachers in, regional use, in universities in regional areas compared to city-based campus, campuses? Yeah, it's such an important such an important question, Grace. You know, Australia is such a varied country in terms of geographically. You know, we're a very, very large country with a small population that's very concentrated in the coastal metropolitan And so we have huge areas of regional, um, you know, rural and, and remote areas where the, the schools, the challenges, the, the things, the, the opportunities, can be quite, quite different. So your question is really well. Um, we would say, I mean, in terms of, you know, what using research well looks like, um, it, it's, it's the process of using research well is similar regardless of your context. But the type of research that you will want to use, the ways in which you'll adapt it and implement it in your school will be different depending on your context. So, for instance, if we take a, uh, an, you know, an issue which is very live, like student disengagement, um, now the, way, the research that could inform a response to improving um, you know, improving engagement from, for disengaged learners or, or learners who are at risk of disengagement. The research could be quite similar, but um, the way in which you respond and implement it within a metropolitan high school versus uh, a regional um, secondary college would, would be quite different. So, for instance, in a regional secondary college, there may not be alternate... Um, you know, alternate education, off-site kind of small alternate provision uh, for for disengaged students, that, that just might not be an option which you've got in the local area. So therefore, which you, you may well have access to in a metropolitan area. So in the in a regional area, you'd need to 
um, think about, okay, how can we do something on-site within our school rather than using an off-site facility? You know, so it really, it really does vary. The, the challenges that, um, you know, you're responding to and the ways in which you implement research-informed practice will be different depending on your context. And the, that's a great example between a regional and a metro um, mm. school. That's awesome. Yeah, and Mark, unfortunately, we're going to be running out of time soon. So just yeah. one last question, last question for you. With universities, semesters are pretty much already ended. Mm. And with the 2023 year coming to an end soon, what is Q Project expecting in the future and hoping to achieve with when universities reopened early again next year, 2024? Yeah, well, the funny thing with universities, Grace, is that they, they come to an end for for students and, sem- and semesters, but they don't come to an end for staff. So, <laughs> so the Q Project's work continues on uh, on hard. Um, we're continuing, um, you know, to work uh, particularly around professional learning short courses for teachers and school leaders. We're looking to see how we can integrate our ideas into the initial teacher education um, within the Faculty of Education at Monash. And we're working with partners across the Australian education um, organisation, you know, uh, sort of system um, around, you know, the way in which evidence use and, you know, the use of research plays out within the bigger policy like the National School Reform Agreement, etc. So, yeah, there's, there's lots, of, lots of work, Grace, and uh, mm. it, it, it continues, even though semester might be uh, coming to an end. <laughs> That's perfect. Oh, no worries. Um, at least it gives teachers more time to get the stuff prepared before the university, university starts. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been lovely having you. No problem. Thanks so much for your interest, Grace. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And that was Associate Professor Mark Rickinson, who is the Project Director of Monash University's The Q Project, speaking about bridging the gap between teaching practices and research and the use of research. If you want to learn more about The Q Project, you can head to Monash University's website and search for Q Project. And there's also a lot of resources for educators on research evidence use. That was very interesting and uh, seemed to uh, relate quite substantially to the yep. first interview that we did about history teaching and the way mm. we need to constantly be uh, targeting our audiences and yeah, yeah educa- education and especially at this point of time education is just always so consistently be very important for everyone yeah you might have heard about the community radio plus app but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it you can listen to us wherever you are at home work driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's north? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. 
For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to So just to recap, a few announcements about events taking place over the next few days. So Friday the 27th of October at 5.30pm, the Critical Mass North group is gathering for a protest for safe bike lanes. Uh, That will be at the State Library, 5.30pm this Friday, and they're encouraging uh, everyone to bring their bikes, but also uh, costumes uh, for a bit of Halloween fun at the same time, and that cycle will uh, continue all the way to All Nations Park in Northcote. Then on Saturday, we have the Grandmothers for Climate group uh, gathering at the Art Gallery of Victoria. And that's the Mother's Rebellion for Climate Justice uh, at the NGV Southbank, Saturday, the, October the 28th at 11am. Uh, and then on Sunday, there is more happening. With the centennial tribute to Clara Fraser taking place um, at Thorn Harbour Health at 200 Hoddle Street, Abbotsford, uh, that is organised by Living Socialist Feminists and that will be discussing the politics and practice of Clara Fraser Sunday, October the 29th at 4pm at Thorn Harbour Health. We're going to go to a song now and then when we come back we're going to be talking about another event taking place on Saturday at uh, a dance event at Footscray Community Arts. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason Flow is kinda different like I'm boxing to a park I paint many pictures and they ask me what for What's your motivation? I'm flying higher than the ace of space Yeah, they mad at the black kid Cause I do it my way Wanna cuff my black wrist And lose in my composites But I know they can never find me Cause I'm that early bird getting at the rock I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason I've been up early in the morning to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason If everybody got one, why they bother with my Fragile leaders always follow the time What you finna do to get paid? New chains on the same old slave Think we get ahead, then they go and pull us backwards Back to the mission, no more funds, just rations Back when these whips are get to cracking But I'm not early, but and you just crash I've been up early 
early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are. At home, work, driving. On public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Our next guest is David Prakash, an Indian Samoan dance artist and youth worker based in Nam. David is a team member at L2R, a not-for-profit organisation based in Melbourne's West, dedicated to providing free dance programs, arts, leadership opportunities and employment pathways for children and young people traditionally underrepresented or absent from mainstream arts and culture. This weekend, L2R is running Block Party, a dance event at Footscray Community Arts, and we have David on the line to tell us about it. Good morning. How are you this morning, David? Very good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for joining us on Breakfast. 
before we hear about the event this Saturday, can you tell us a bit about the different dance styles you have worked in? Uh, for me personally, um, a bit of hip-hop, freestyle, a bit of house dance, crump, a little bit of popping as well. Um, and I started also in choreography. Yeah, I was reading about all those different dance styles and apart from the hip-hop, I wasn't familiar with any of them. Can you give us a brief rundown what these different styles involved because I'm sure that's uh, connected with what's uh, going to be coming up on Saturday. Yeah, so I guess um, hip-hop freestyle, traditionally done to like hip-hop music. Um, house dance is more like club dance, so like club music, house music, a bit higher BPM, usually like faster footwork kind of vibe. Um, and crump is a bit more like street-focused. Um, it feels quite strong in its aesthetic. Um, and with popping as well, like, uh, the style sort of focuses on, like, contraction of muscles, um, and you get some really cool effects coming through from the dance. Mm, sounds like something you have to see to, uh, really get a hold of what it, what it looks like. Um, so turning to L2R, can you tell us about this organisation and what it does? Um, yeah, so as, as you mentioned, it's a not-for-profit based in Melbourne's West. Um, we run a bunch of free dance programs um, out in the West. And then there's a bu- there's also like a program that I run called Igniting Legends, which looks at creating like career pathways with young street dance artists who, who want to look at what a career could look like in the arts. Um, and then along with that as well, like uh, those who have started with Altua sort of have come up and like, learned and trained now perform like semi-professionally um in some of the gigs so like there's some big ones that they do like towards the end of the year like um new year sort of gigs as well um and i think they've also done moomba as well too and the participants in the programs do they come to you as dancers or is this the first time they're involved in dance or is it a mix yeah, um, mix, big mix. So sometimes it could be like no dance background at all and this is the first time they're learning how to dance. Um, and then in other moments it could be you already have a dance background and then you just sort of want to find a community to do that with. Um, so Altoir is good for that too. And what is the philosophy behind the programs and particularly what is it about dance or street dance that makes it a vehicle for connection and collaboration among young people? Um, it's, I think it's having having and holding the space for young people to come in and have fun with each other to connect through the movement and the dance and I guess understand their individual individual experience amongst the collective. And I think um, consistency, providing consistency in those spaces um, is really important for our young people and any young person that sort of comes into the street dance community. So can you tell us a little bit more? You talked about holding the space for these young people. Can you tell us what that looks like in terms of the way the, the programs are rolled out and, you know, what sort of happens in, 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 a, in a session that might be different from a typical dance class? Um, if we're talking specifically in the dance program, it, it does focus on a dance class component um, in, a, I guess, a smaller collective space. Um, that sort of caters to all levels and then there's like intermediate as well so you can sort of go a step above and sort of um, push the skill set a little bit more. Um, 
And then you can sort of turn to like the program that I look after, which is Igniting Legends, which holds space for young people in a different way, who are already using their dance and kind of already leaders in their own spaces. But then we sort of try to translate that into like uh, skills, like, you know, resume building, um, you know, going to shows and like sort of critiquing what they see um, and building networks amongst, you know, um, the spaces that we occupy as well. And the the group that participates is very culturally diverse. That must bring a really rich um, base to the, the work that you all do together. Yep, 100%, 100%. We always try to make sure that, it, you know, with every young person that they try to bring them Bring their like bring themselves to the space as well, whether it means culturally or you know whatever that means for them. Excellent. Um, so tell us about the event on Saturday, the block party event. I'm assuming it's nothing to do with building apartments. Um, what can people expect? Yeah, so at the block party, which will be at Footscray Community Arts, we're going to have performance through dance. Um, we'll have jams or ciphers um, and then we'll also have dance battles alongside all of that. So some of the performances you can expect are Melbourne Afro Dance Hall, JC Collective, Afro Movement Academy, Out and Bad, Quabo, um, Burn City's Crumps Orphan. Um, with the jams, they're going to be hosted by Jam on Toast and the music will be provided by Antagonize. And the jam and battle component, can you tell us what this is? Yeah, so with jamming, um, the word we usually use is ciphering. Um, so when we talk about ciphering, it sort of looks at coming together using the language of dance, whether it be crump, popping, locking, house dance, could even be contemporary. Um, but we look at sharing in a circular fashion. You know, one person goes in, everyone on the circle supports, the next person will go in or two people can go in. So that's what you would sort of classify as a jam. And then with the battle element, it looks at um, basically testing your level of skill against other dancers on different kinds of music. So this, this battle specifically will have, it's called an open styles, and with open styles you might get like a house track, you might get a clump track, you, know, you might get a hip-hop track. So it sort of changes as you progress through the levels within the battle. Okay, and who is participating in that? Is that open to anyone who might be listening this morning that's interested in dancing, can they sign up and be part? Or is this a, a pre-organised group that will be joining? Yeah, great question. Um, so anyone can enter the battle. In fact, I, I really strongly encourage, you know, um, if you just sort of want to get your dance shoes on, come down and have a boogie in the dance battle component, please do. The prize money, prize money is $1,000. So, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of money off of that there. Um, usually how it works is you come down, there's like preliminary, preliminary rounds, so you do like a 30-second dance, and then the judges will score you based on what they see. Um, I guess a fun component of this battle is that um, there'll be a go, it'll go straight to a top eight, but each person will then be allocated with an L2R dancer. So it'll be like a 2v2 experience where they can partner up and dance together. Sounds like heaps of fun. We've got Pat here already practising his moves and uh, he might uh, end up signing up. 
Yeah, please, please do tell Pat to come down. <laughs> so how can listeners get along to this event? Um, where, where and what time is it on and how can they buy tickets? Yep, uh, so the event is at Footscray Community Arts, <clears throat> um, just on the lawn area towards the back. Um, event will run from 12 to 3, and if you're under 18, it's free for you. Over 18, $20 ticket. You just got to head over to eltoir.org.au or you can find us on Instagram at eltoir underscore dance. Excellent. Well, uh, I might have to get myself a ticket and uh, head over there and check it out. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun and a really exciting thing to do this weekend. Thanks. Yep, we got- Thank <laughs> you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that was street dancer and community youth worker David Prakash talking about Block Party, a L2R dance event taking place this Saturday at Footscray Community Arts. And just to recap, uh, that event is 12 till 3pm this Saturday the 28th of October and Footscray Community Arts is located at 45 Moreland Street, Footscray. Uh, you can get uh, tickets uh, online and also register for the battle if you're keen to have a go at that. We will put those links on our show notes. That sounds like a very interesting program there, Claudia. Uh, Claudia, I just want to ask, do you think you are a dancer yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and would you want to go for this program this Saturday? Well, I'll, I think I'll sidestep, uh, to use a dance term, that uh, <laughs> question. <laughs> but I will say that... Uh, I was completely bamboozled by these different dance styles, popping, hip-hop, house and crump. Uh, I asked my daughter if they were aware of any of these and they said to me that um, as an interviewer, I should do my homework. Oh, (laughs) harsh, Claudia, harsh. (laughs) That's uh, really not so harsh when you've got teenagers. But but, uh, anyway, so I went and had a look on YouTube and looked up each of these and um, they are the most complicated, fast-moving dance steps. So I'm in awe of the participants in the programs who have attempted to learn them. And, yeah, really intrigued to, to see them in action. So, um, yeah, it should be really fun. Yeah, it sounds really fun. Um, I personally like dancing myself, so this was very interesting to see. Have I not told you before that no. I enjoy dancing? Yeah, I actually I started dancing um, back in high school. I think I've pretty much loved doing it for quite a while now. That's one of the only things I generally like doing <laughs> during my free time. So I actually stopped a bit when I came here in Melbourne because I was focusing on studies and everything and not like I really have the space to dance as well. And I've noticed classes to take classes here because I've tried like jazz classes and as well as like open choreography kind of classes and they're very expensive. Mm. I think just because being in the city is just it just must makes it costly so i i that's why i try to hinder myself from going too much even though i want to go all the time because i i love dancing so much and they have the space for that you know when you go to the dance studios but they're very expensive so it's quite nice to see places providing free dance programs because you really you can't Mm. get you can't get that anywhere so i think going to these places where you get to dance with the community is a great thing 
Yeah, and I, I expect that the ticketing um, is geared to being able to create a you know financial mm. base to continue those programs. So, um, well, we might see Grace on the, the dance floor on, on Saturday. We'll, we'll have to report back. There we go, listen, there we go, listeners. She's also a lover of dancing and wombats. So, listeners, we've uh, that's true. Day. I probably might do a segment on that next week because oh ooh, my god, don't, it, we want to find. I want to find out if there's dangers for my wombats because they shouldn't be because they are very precious animals, you know. Yeah, I heard on the on the trap on the grapevine that there might be something of that nature coming out. So, uh, listeners, highly recommend get to listen to the show next Wednesday because we'll be talking wombats, which I can't cannot wait. I think we might have time for one more track before we wrap up. What have you got for us, Pat? Uh, we are gonna go with. I'm just looking. Uh, we'll go with uh, Black Fella, White Fella by Jimmy Little to finish us off this morning. <laughs> As long as you're a a true fella As long as you're a a real fella All the people of different races With different lives in different places It doesn't matter what your name is We got to have lots of changes We need more brothers If we're to make it, we need more sisters If we're to save it, are you the one who's gonna stand up and be counted? Are you the one who's gonna be there when we shout it? Are you the one who's always ready with a helping hand?
And I hope that pump you up for this morning. Have a lovely morning, all listeners. Thanks to all our guests today. They uh, gave some really good insight. If you want to recap and listen back to the show, you can. Go to 3cr.org.au, go to podcasts, go to Wednesday Breakfast, and make sure to download the Community Radio Plus app to get all your 3CR shows. Now, up next, we'll be Stick Together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.